0: Imagine now a man who is deprived of everything he loves, and at the same time of his house, his habits, his clothes, in short, of everything he possesses. He will be a hollow man, reduced to suffering and needs, forgetful of dignity and restraint, for he who loses all often easily loses himself. He will be A man whose life or death can be lightly decided with no sense of human affinity, in the most fortunate of cases on the basis of a pure judgement of utility. It is in this way that one can understand the double sense of the term extermination camp, and it is now clear what we seek to express with the phrase to lie on the bottom. Primo Levi if this is a man. Primo Levi's account of his time in the Auschwitz subcamp of Buna—that that is Auschwitz III or Monowitz, so named because of the Monowitz chemical plants production or intended production of Buna synthetic rubber, in if this is a man, is not something one can read easily in a single sitting, Not because of its length or its depth, but because, as Howard Jacobson writes in the 2013 introduction, it is a work that forces the reader to put the book down, to catch a breath to reflect, before taking it up to read on. Levy's clarity, his honesty, insight and self-reflection provide the reader with a witness to the bestial depravity of Auschwitz that is, I think, impossible to understate. In the second chapter, On the Bottom, Levy draws a harrowing picture of what he describes as the demolition of a man, the arrival at Auschwitz-Birkenau by train from Italy, the disorientation of the selection on the ramp and the gradual stripping away of everything that makes a man a human being. By the time the processing and registration are complete, he and those who were selected with him from his transport for extermination through labour, Vernichtung durch Arbeit, have been reduced to automatons, haftlinge, dehumanised slaves with nothing to identify them but a number. 174517. This tattoo seals what he describes as his baptism into the Nazi concentrationary system on his left arm until he dies. He died in Turin, Italy, aged 67, on the 11th of April 1987. His death was officially ruled to be a suicide. Strangely, for an atheist, and thanks, at least in part, to the Italian fascist government's insistence that Dante's divine comedy be part of the national curriculum, Primo Levi, a passionate lover of the poetry of Dante Alighieri, was able to understand, intellectually if not emotionally, Auschwitz through the lens of a medieval Italian depiction of hell. Auschwitz was the epicentre of a hellish genocidal project, and Levi, who had come all the way to the bottom, to the ninth circle of hell. In his mind, Auschwitz was the reification of the Inferno. On the bottom, the place, according to Dante, where treachery was punished. But what treachery? Of course, there is no treachery. There is no reason for the suffering other than the hatred of the Hitlerist regime for the Jews. But this is not how the human mind works. People who suffer naturally search for a reason for their suffering, even when there are no reasons. This is one of the central themes of the biblical book of Job. Why do good people suffer? In his conversation with Jean, the Alsatian student known as Piccolo, in the canto of Ulysses chapter, Levy recalls desperately reaching to understand why they were in Auschwitz. It is vitally necessary and urgent that Piccolo listen. he understand this as pleased another, before it is too late. Tomorrow he or I might be dead, or we might never see each other again. I must tell him, I must explain to him about the middle ages, about the so human and so necessary and yet unexpected anachronism, but still more, something gigantic that I myself have only just seen in a flash of intuition, perhaps the reason for our fate for our being here today, and over our heads the hollow sea closed up. He is attempting to recite from memory the closing lines of Canto Twenty-six of Dante's Inferno, the song of the Greek hero Odysseus or Ulysses, and pointing to this as an insight into their present sufferings. Ulysses and Diomodes are together eternally punished in a great and twisting double-headed flame for the deception of the Trojan horse, for breaking Diodamia's heart and for the theft of the statue of Pallas upon which it was believed the fate of Troy depended. For all this the fate of Ulysses was sealed, cum altri piaque Inferno twenty-six, as pleased another, the fate, in short, of the drowned And the saved, according to Levy, is beyond human reason and comprehension. Assuming Levy is not making a sincere reference here to the will of God, we must conclude that what he grasped in this moment was that no man can truly be the master of his own destiny, that the winds and waves which batter the wicked and the just alike are so far beyond our control that they might as well be the absolute and final judgment of God. If we were logical, we would resign ourselves to the evidence that our fate is beyond human knowledge, that every conjecture is arbitrary and demonstrably devoid of foundation. But men are rarely logical when their own fate is at stake. Levy's journey to the Auschwitz extermination camp began at Fossoli detention camp near Modena in northern Italy on the 22nd of February 1944 where he had been imprisoned by the fascists as a partisan. Jews were transported from here in the notorious transport trains, a closed goods wagon through Austria and Czechia into the general government zone of Poland. To Auschwitz-Birkenau. The engine travelled slowly, making frequent unexplained halts as the people crammed into the wagons experienced the full bite of the freezing cold and ached with thirst. Each time the train stopped, the living cargo inside the freight cars called out for water and were given none, making do with the snow, that could be reached from the tiny ventilation holes on the sides of the wagons made secure with woven barbed wire. Next to me, Levy remembers, crushed against me for the whole journey, there had been a woman. We had known each other for many years, and the misfortune had struck us together. But we knew little of each other. Now, in the hour of decision, We said to each other things that are never said among the living. We said farewell. No one in this situation could have believed their captors had anything good planned for them. And only the most naive or falsely optimistic would have expected anything but death at the end of this journey. The transport itself, at least indirectly, was intended to kill those locked inside the wagons. 650 people were on this transport from Fossily, all crammed into just 12 wagons without food, water, or somewhere to relieve themselves. Goods wagons closed from the outside with men, women and children pressed together without pity like cheap merchandise for a journey towards nothingness, a journey down there towards the bottom. All this comes suddenly to an end in the darkness, at a vast platform, the infamous Rampa, where between the spring of 1942 and mid-May 1944, the Schutzstaffel, the SS, sent over half a million Jews and tens of thousands of Poles, Roma and Sinti to the clamour of angry uniformed Germans barking orders to disembark, stack luggage and form lines. This was the beginning of a well-rehearsed shock treatment by which the Nazi concentrationary system stunned prisoners into terrified and bewildered compliance, something Naomi Klein captures well in her discussion of more recent US and US-backed torture regimes in the Shock Doctrine. The point of the experience was getting prisoners to do irreparable damage to that part of themselves that believed in helping others above all else, that part of themselves that made them activists, replacing it with shame and humiliation. Powerless inside overcrowded goods wagons, degraded by having to urinate and defecate on the wooden floor of the wagon in front of strangers, and exhausted by the long journey, by the cold, the lack of sleep, food and water, the prisoners were hopelessly disorientated on the ramp at Birkenau. They look on stunned as prisoners in grotesque, comedic-striped uniforms assist the sick, the elderly and the pregnant from the cars before offloading the bodies of those who had perished on the way. Almost immediately, these hapless people on the ramp are reduced to that state of shame and humiliation described by Klein. The psychology that motivates one person to help another has been silenced. They have been shocked and traumatised into a temporary passivity, but passive long enough for the coming blows to continue raining down undefended. In this episode of the Holocaust Podcast, we will, like Dante, take Primo Levi as our guide as he charts his way to the bottom of the Nazi terror regime, to that point, the lowest point, of the human experience from which a human being can fall no further this begins by the design of the ss concentration camp system after selection when those deemed unfit for work for vernichtung durch arbeit extermination by labor have been separated from those selected to enter the arbeitslager the labor camp and marched off through the darkness and fog to their deaths in the crematoria Mothers did not want to be parted from their children and so were told good by the SS men, members of the Totenkopfverbanda, the SS Head Brigade, and to stay with their children. Levy recalls a young man Renzo being knocked to the ground with a single blow because he remained with his fiancée Francesca a moment too long. Even in this dance of deceptive Teutonic efficiency and order, There was ever-present the cold and calculating brutality of the millennia-old hatred of the Jews. In an instant, he writes, after the selection was complete, our women, our parents, our children disappeared. We saw them for a short while as an obscure mass at the other end of the platform. Then we saw nothing more. Here the reader is confronted with the myth of passive Jews going to their deaths like lambs to the slaughter. A myth as old as the Shoah itself. Hungry, cold, shocked and disorientated, these people came off these stinking wagons. Met with bright lights in the thick darkness, the shouting of the SS and the barking of the dogs. They met with the iron fist behind the smart military uniforms. They were frightened and confused their captors, were not. Everything they experienced on the rampe at Auschwitz-Birkenau was a well-rehearsed performance, acted out on people who had not the slightest idea of what to expect, or where they were, or why they were there. And before they could even begin to make sense of their awful situation, they had been separated from their families, their parents, their spouses, their children, Their heavily armed and battle-dressed tormentors had taken precious hostages. At this point in the horrific drama, the only route to future resistance was compliance. Perhaps some new arrivals suspected their fate. Many from the Polish ghettos would have been familiar with the rumours of Birkenau and Treblinka. But as we see from Levy's memoirs, Others were entirely unsuspecting. He himself admitted to being Jewish in Italy, believing it would save him from the harsh treatment the Italian fascists meted out to anti-fascist partisans. He was captured as a partisan. In truth, while knowing their fate would not be pleasant, the Italian Jews on Primo Levi's transport were in the dark. They had no idea about Auschwitz-Birkenau and they had no idea that this was a murder factory. It was now his descent to the bottom would begin. Two groups of strange individuals emerged into the light of the lamps. They walked in squads and rows of three, with an odd, embarrassed step, heads dangling and front arms rigid. On their heads, they wore comic berries and were all dressed in long striped overcoats, which even by night, and from a distance, looked filthy and in rags. They walked in a large circle around us, never drawing near, and in silence began to busy themselves with our luggage, and to climb in and out of the empty wagons. At the moment his descent to the bottom, to the threshold of the House of the Dead, begins, the selected men and women's depersonalisation as Haftlinge, inmates or prisoners, is foreshadowed by the arrival of two squads of Sonderkommandos, male Jewish prisoners compelled to assist with the processing of each newly arrived transport. These unfortunate men, considered geheimen or secret bearers by the SS, would remove the luggage from the goods wagons and from the platform and ferry them to the Canada Barracks, where the possessions of the murdered and the new inmates would be sorted and shipped back to the Reich for sale or use by the state. They would help the elderly and the sick from the wagons and accompany them to the crematoria, or put them in waiting carts or ambulances that would carry them there. They would usher the doomed into the crematoria complex, reassure people with the lies the SS had told them, and ultimately heard them into the gas chambers. It was the men of the Commando who would remove the dead, shave all their body hair, remove their gold teeth and search cavities for valuables before reducing them to ash in the ovens. These Commandos, described by Primo coming out of the darkness into the dazzling light of the platform lamps, were the men of the Canada Detail, their dress, their striped concentration camp overcoats and silly looking berries, is in some way comedic. It was designed with a dual purpose, at once to degrade and humiliate the wearer and identify him as a prisoner. These are intended to be taken as non-persons, having been stripped of everything that sets them apart from nature and other people. This is the amorphous swell of the camp, dehumanised and depersonalised. Primo Levi and those standing with him take this in, and they look at one another. All of it is incomprehensible and mad, but they know tomorrow they will be like them. Shortly thereafter, Primo and the other men are pushed up onto lorries in the dark. The gas chambers and the ovens at Birkenau are not for them not yet they have been selected for the Auschwitz Monowitz subcamp a few kilometers east of Birkenau past the Auschwitz main camp or Stamlager this arbeitslager is a private labor camp at which the civilian directors of IG Farben the synthetic rubber plant or the Buna make use of Haftlinger the company lease from the SS labor administration office the arbeitsdienst Here perhaps we should make an important distinction between this forced labour qua extermination by labour and slave labour. This is not slave labour. These Jewish prisoners are not slaves as they are so often described. Professor Martin Rumscheid, whose father Carl was an executive at IG Farben during the years of the Third Reich makes this important observation. Many historians speak of the inhumane treatment of the workforce at IG Farben as slave labour. For example, Daniel Goldhagen uses that term, I don't like to use that term, I prefer forced labour. For the following reason, the term slave is inappropriate for the inmate workers at Auschwitz. The inmates were not slaves, they did not perform slave labour. And the people of IG Farben were not slave owners. Here, a comparison to slavery in the United States is helpful. A slaveholder invests in the energy resources of the workers in order to reap maximum profit from them. A minimum of the essentials for life have to be provided in order to ensure optimal and long-lasting interest yield on invested capital. But the SS was not interested in keeping inmates alive. Its primary aim was not financial profit. Precisely because the issue for the SS was the destruction and not the economic exploitation of the Jewish inmates. The life expectancy of these conditions under forced labour could be as low as a few months and, as happened when tens of thousands of Jews arrived from Hungary beginning in June 1944, it would be no more than a few weeks. To describe extermination through labour as slave labour, in my judgement, is tantamount to an apology of both the SS and IG Farben. It is in the lorry, in the dark, that Primo and the others realise that they are not without a guard. A German soldier, bristling with arms, is sitting with them, his presence made known to them when the truck throws them up and they come into hard contact with him. He is a peculiar soldier. Rather than shouting at them, he turns on a small torch and addresses the men courteously, in a mix of German and Pidgin. He wants to know if any of the prisoners have any money or valuables they would like to give him, seeing as they will have no more need of them. This recollection captures perfectly the soul of the SS project. While styled by Reichsführer SS Heinrich Himmler and Theodor Eike, the father of the developed concentrationary system, as the perfect political soldier, the true purpose of Auschwitz was banal and that of the SS man was petty. This was a heist, it was theft. Die Entslung der Judefrage, the final solution of the Jewish question in Europe, was the complete robbery of the Jewish people and their total destruction. From the offices of the Inspectorate of Concentration Camps in Berlin to the grubby antics of little SS Totenkopf Guards in the camps. This was about personal enrichment. Sure, SS men caught stealing could be disciplined. Not because they were stealing from their victims, but because the state was stealing from the victims. Stolen Jewish property was considered the property of the Reich. Primo begins this description of his descent to the bottom by identifying this SS man as our Charon, a reference to the figure in Greek mythology who ferries the dead across the rivers Acheron and Styx to Hades and Erebos, the gloomy underworld, the land of the dead. In doing this, he flattens the myth, not only the ancient mythology but that constructed by the modern Nazi death machine, Charon or Charon is an absolute, he is the gatekeeper of the House of the Dead and the last personality encountered by the dead in the transitional geography between life and oblivion. Likewise, the myth of the SS as the warriors of the master race, the Ubermensch or Superman, was the absolute of the terror state, the New Order the Aryan hero who stood between the life and vitality of European Jewry and its absolute annihilation. Primo flattens this by exposing it as pathetic. Time demolished Sharon and experience unmasked the SS as a band of thugs and bullies, as little men, but dangerous little men all the same. Again, Primo reminds his readers that this is the road to hell. Through me one goes into the town of woe, through me one goes into eternal pain, through me among the people that are lost. Justice inspired my high exalted maker, I was created by the might divine, the highest wisdom and the primal love. Before me there was not created, save eternal things and I eternal last. All hope abandon, ye who enter here. Inferno, Chapter 3 Not twenty minutes later the truck shuddered to a stop at a brightly illuminated door above which the sign ominously read, Arbeit macht frei, work makes you free. According to Freddy Noller and Robert Landau in Desperate Journey 2002 and Dennis Avey, and Rob Brumby in The Man Who Broke Into Auschwitz 2011. This slogan was on the entrance gates at the Monowitz Arbeitslager Auschwitz 3, as it was at the Auschwitz Stammlager or Auschwitz I. Of course, the memories of survivors and other witnesses will be fractured and distorted by trauma and time, but it was most certainly there and both locations are possible. At gross Rosen and Theresenstadt, it was on the walls of the main gatehouse, and at Dachau-Sachsenhausen and Auschwitz I it was part of the wrought iron gate itself. Levy's memoir, if this is a man, was first published in 1947, two years after liberation, and so has the benefit of being the earliest recollection of these sources. Peter Hayes, an excellent historian of the Holocaust, comments on the problems of survivor memories when he notes that early testimonies of the selection at the Birkenau Judenrampe only reference the presence of SS men and SS doctors, while later versions invariably place the infamous doctor of death, Josef Mengele, at the scene. Time and the cross-pollination of other people's testimonies distort memory. Immediately upon arrival, once the men in the lorry have been offloaded and herded into an enormous empty hall, the twisted mind games of the SS Totenkopf Verbande begin. These men have been locked in a wooden goods wagon for four days without food and water on their excruciatingly slow transport from Italy to Poland. The gurgling sound of the radiators remind them of their thirst and make them ferocious and over the only tap in the room, a card reads, Bolton." A twisted joke, Levy decides to ignore, only to discover that the water is putrid. The water is sweet and tepid and stinks of the swamp. He spits it out and joins the rest of the men dejected. A German strides into the room and orders them to take off their clothes and to put their shoes in a corner, whereupon another person comes presumably, a prisoner, with a broom and begins to sweep their shoes along, mixing them all up. Ninety-six pairs of shoes, all jumbled in this strange and apparently absurd grotesque action. This strikes the reader as a zombified behaviour, the misplaced repetition of employments done in life by the now undead. The men, now alienated and divorced from the familiar reality of their world, have nothing left in them but confused obedience. The door that leads to the camp is open, and the prisoners fold their arms over their naked torsos and hide behind one another in a futile effort to escape the freezing blast. The German standing at the door takes in their miserable exposure for a moment before leaving them and slamming the door. Alone again, in the huge entrance hall, someone, a Mr Levy, asks Primo, and our women. Are they going through the same thing at this moment in some other room? Will we see them again? I say yes, because he is married and has a daughter. Certainly he will see them again, but by now my belief is that all this is a game to mock and sneer at us. Clearly they will kill us. Whoever thinks he is going to live is mad it means that he has swallowed the bait, but I have not, I have understood that it will soon all be over, perhaps in this same room, when they are bored of seeing us naked, dancing from foot to foot and trying every now and again to sit down on the floor, but there are two inches of cold water and we cannot sit down. After seemingly endless moments of naked and cold torment, another prisoner a haftling comes to address them. This use of prisoners to govern other prisoners is a trick the Hitlerist regime developed in the early camps from 1933 and developed into the later more uniform Concentration Lager system of Himmler's SS. You are at Monowitz, he informs them in poor Italian, a work camp or Arbeitslager near Auschwitz in Upper Silesia. Oswiecim, better known by its German name Auschwitz, was a railway hub in southern Poland, but this would have meant nothing to the Italian prisoners on their arrival. All they have are questions, and the man speaking to them tries to answer them. He's patient, he's polite, but language is a problem. Trains from every corner of German-occupied Europe brought people to Auschwitz, from Italy and France, from the Netherlands, Slovakia, and everywhere – transforming the monstrous camp into a babel, a place of confused language. Learning German and the ever-changing pigeon of the camp was, as Primo would shortly discover, essential for survival in this inhuman and hostile environment. The Haftlinger here, of which there were about 10,000 each with a life expectancy of no more than three and a half months, work at the synthetic rubber plant, giving the place name Buna after the rubber made there by the massive German industrial conglomerate IG Farben. Five minutes of bliss follow when they are showered. The water gushes out piping hot. But what a welcome change to the icy cold of the Polish pre-dawn darkness. We can imagine the men lifting their open mouths, letting the water from the showerheads quench their aching thirst. Maybe for a few moments this break relieves more than just their thirst. This is an Arbeitslager. People are alive here. They've seen them. The figure with the brush and the prisoner who had just now addressed them. Perhaps Primo's fears were unfounded. Perhaps this was only a work camp. Perhaps their women and children were elsewhere right now in a warm shower. What they could not have known, and perhaps it's good that they didn't, was that most of the people who had arrived with them, who less than an hour before had stepped off the wagons at the Birkenau platform, were already undressed and inside the other showers they had at Auschwitz. And our women, they were dead already, and by morning their bodies would have been reduced to bone and ash in the ovens of the Birkenau crematoria. Still wet, they were driven into another room, a freezing room, where ragged, striped uniforms were thrust at them and where they were given a pathetic set of wooden clogs to replace their own shoes. Their shoes were already on the way back to the Canada block where they would be reunited with their clothes and the clothes and shoes of everyone who had come off that night's transport from Carpi. These would be sorted and repaired by the female halflinger of the Canada Commando for shipment back to the Reich for resale. Meanwhile, Primo and those with him are given no time to think. They are pushed out of the freezing building into the snow naked and shoeless and forced at a running pace to a hut a hundred yards away as a bell sounds in the dark to awaken those thousands of forced labourers sleeping a sleepless sleep in the ocean of barracks stretching out before them, only now can they dress and begin to fathom their situation. Then for the first time we become aware that our language lacks words to express this offence. The demolition of a man. In a moment with almost prophetic intuition, the reality was revealed to us. We had reached the bottom. It is not possible to sink lower than this. No human condition is more miserable than this. Nor could it conceivably be so. Nothing belongs to us anymore. They have taken away our clothes, our shoes, even our hair. If we speak, they will not listen to us. And if they listen, they will not understand. They will even take away our name. And if we want to keep it, we will have to find in ourselves the strength to do so, to manage somehow so that behind the name something of us, of us as we were, still remains. The demolition of a man. Primo Levi, as a writer, as a thinker, is unparalleled in his singular ability, his gift, to give language where language does not belong, in the basest offence for which there are no words. Let us remember even that the term genocide had not even been coined as these crimes were being perpetrated. There were no words for what was happening, yet in the years after liberation, Levy trawled the depths of his own being and his culture, searching every corner of European culture for the language to express not only the depths of his own humiliation and depersonalization, but for the unthinkable crime unfolding around him. Few who disembarked at Birkenau survived to tell the tale, even fewer who entered Monowitz, the place of extermination by labour, lived to tell the world, and of those who did survive, most spent decades in silence. They withdrew from the world and spent the remainder of their lives just trying to cope with the horror. Primo was different. He survived and he spoke, he wrote. And the language he found shakes us even still. His memories demand pause and reflection for us to catch a breath. We know that we will have difficulty in being understood, and this is as it should be, but consider what value, what meaning is enclosed even in the smallest of our daily habits. In the hundred possessions which even the poorest beggar owns, a handkerchief, an old letter, the photo of a cherished person, these things are part of us, almost like limbs of our body. Nor is it conceivable that we can be deprived of them in our world, for we immediately find others to substitute old ones, other objects which are ours in their personification and evocation of our memories. Auschwitz existed to demolish humanity, to reduce the person to a shadow, a shade. And for the Shades who experienced it, this was the underworld, the threshold of the House of the Dead. His baptism into this new and bitter world was the number 174517, and he would carry those numbers as a tattoo on his arm until his death, like all who survived the camps. Shaved, wet and freezing cold, the tattooist, with well-practiced skill, went through his group in alphabetical order, the last time his name would mean anything, in the concentrationary system and ran the small electric tattoo gun with its short needle over each of their arms. It was only slightly painful, he remembers, but this was his true initiation. This was the sum total of his identity, personality and being in Monowitz. Weeks and months were needed to learn its sound in the German language. Only by showing this number on his arm was he given his daily starvation rations of watery soup and a lump of stale bread. And for many days, while the habits of freedom still led me to look for the time on my wristwatch, my new name ironically appeared instead, its number tattooed in bluish characters under the skin. In as little as one hour, the full metamorphosis of the man had taken place. He had been demolished. When the doors of the freight wagons were opened on the platform, men and women, old and young, stepped into the dazzling light of an SS shock routine. Barking and shouts forced compliance, that together with demonstrations of savage violence to drive the message home, parted from their loved ones and driven off in the dark. These were still men who wore their humanity like their everyday clothes. They were human without questioning it. Processing, registration, showers, the removal of all their body hair and the tattoo surmounted by a clownish striped uniform and camp issue beret. They were reduced to shadows, to non-persons, left asking themselves if indeed this was a man. Primo Levi describes this moment as the bottom and life in Monovitz, as life on the bottom, beneath which no man can fall and whose only escape is through the chimney. Yet he himself tells his readers that there is a ring of hell below even this. And that is the non-life of the Musulmana. Those who have come to the end of their strength in the camp, the emaciated and skeletal men who fall to their knees during roll call and whose heads, too heavy for their wasted bodies, slowly sink to the ground in front of them, leaving them looking like Muslims at prayer. For these, there is only a bullet to the back of the neck or selection for Birkenau. Thank you for listening to the Holocaust Podcast. I. I'm Jason Michael McCann, and You can support the work that I'm doing on this podcast on Patreon by following the link on screen or in the description below. Please do like and subscribe and follow the project as it grows. Thank you for listening and I hope to see you in the next episode.